We are, we are in October, so we are going to do our regular uh, study of historical characters, movements, and so on that have marked the, ha the history of the Protestant Church or have contributed to the history of the Reformation. And uh, we've seen that that's been um, helpful, at least we as elders have thought that this has been helpful to us as we to get to know about that cloud of witnesses that have gone before us and are encouraged by them. And this year, our goal is to look at some the, uh, women of the Reformation, and we only have five Sundays, so we're going to look at five of them, as, even though there have been so many that were so helpful to the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we chose to speak about important people that the Church doesn't know, uh, people that we can have enough information about, but that the Church may not be aware of them, and should be aware, because they've been, they've contributed uh, quite a bit to the history of the church. Now, throughout the centuries, uh, the Lord has used men and women to build, to build his church. Now, what would uh, Luther have been without his Katie? You, look, uh, you read uh, Luther's uh, history or biography, and you see that his wife was a big part on, of, of, of that. Uh, the, um, the women of the Reformation have been an important element of the history of the Reformed Church, just as Deborah and Esther and the Marys of the New Testament have contributed to the history of the Bible, so have the, woman, the women who have served alongside the men in God's providence. So we'll focus on five women that have impacted the uh, history of the church and yet are not very well known. Now, Catherine and Luther looms large in any discussion about Protestant women during the Reformation. She has earned her acclaim through her work and through her high-profile, high-maintenance husband uh, as she uh, served alongside um, Luther. But there were other women, women that are not as known. We're not going to be talking about Katie Luther this time around. Um, we're going to be talking about Others who benefited, who contributed to this newly, newly revived church, and they have a lot to teach us as well. And we're going to start in Switzerland. Uh, so we tried to go around Europe because that's where things are happening at the time. We're going to start in Switzerland with Anna Reinhardt, uh, sometimes spelled with a T. Then we'll shift our attention to France with two women, with Marguerite de Navarre and Louise de Coligny. Then we are going to hop over to England with Catherine Willoughby, and we'll end in Italy and Germany with Olympia Morata. These are the five women uh, that um, we're going to be using, and uh, we're going, we are using as our loose curriculum for this series a book written by Rebecca Van Der Van Van. Duduard. That's lots of letters in that name. Um, and uh, she is uh, guiding us in this discussion. So these are the five women we're going to be looking for, uh, looking to, looking uh, uh, throughout the month of October. So, first one, Anna Reinhardt. Has anybody ever heard of her besides the elders of the church. Rebecca, Rebecca has heard of her. Anybody else? So, 
So you can see that this, this is not a super well-known woman yet. She was of great influence in the Swiss, uh, Swiss Reformation, especially in Zurich, Switzerland. Um, we, we don't know a lot about uh, the Reformed Church, the, uh, about the uh, Swiss, the, the Zurich Reformation, even though it's earlier than the Reformation of Geneva, where we tend to know a lot because Calvin was involved with that Reformation. She is the first woman to become a reformer's wife when she married. Uh, and this guy, you're going to have all kinds of different ways to say his first name. So I'm just going to stick with one and try to keep the same uh, throughout. But she married Eurek Zwingli. She was the very first woman to marry a reformer in Switzerland. I, I put on the, a map here so you kind of have an idea where Switzerland, Switzerland is. And where Zurich is in Switzerland, you can see that Zurich is up north. And Geneva is going to be, I don't know if you can read, there's a little gray names, but it's further to your left on the bottom, on the tip of Switzerland. Now, we tend to think of Switzerland as a, as a whole country, but by the time of the Reformation, each one of these little places were a, was a city-state. It had its own government they were loosely connected as a federation, but there was no federal government over these different... And how were, remember how the city-states were called in Switzerland? The bays were free, uh, fresh from the boat from Switzerland. Cantons. Yes. They were called cantons, the different regions of Switzerland. And each one was independent from the others. Now, as, as we study Anna Reinhardt, it's tempting to say that... that uh, um, this is a, a lesson about her, and yet focus on Zwingli for the whole thing. And though Zwingli will loom large in our lesson because it was her husband, I hope that at the end of this lesson we will have a good understanding of whom she was. Like, uh, so this is Anna again. Like Calvin's wife, remember Calvin's wife's name? Mrs. Calvin. Mrs. Calvin. <laughs> Weston's. Do you remember Calvin's wife? Yeah. Idolette, yes, uh, yes, uh, or Mrs. Calvin, but her first name was uh, Idolette de Bure. That was the last name before she was married. Anna was a young widow when she married, uh, uh, when she met her future husband. Her future husband came to town uh, and uh, became a priest in uh, Zurich. We have no record of her birth place or birth date or birth date. But uh, we are told by scholars that was 14, that likely 1484 when she was born. We know little about her youth except that uh, she was beautiful and that a young local nobleman, we're going to call him John, uh, his German name is unpronounceable, uh, but John is close enough to, to it. Uh, this young nobleman wanted to marry her. But his family opposed the match because John was a noble and she wasn't. She was a plebeian, uh, just a common person. So they married in secret. But with all secrets, eventually people found out and John's family um, disowned him. So he actually had to work to provide for his family, for his wife, which was a really novel idea for him since noblemen usually just lived off of the rent of the lands that they they own. He became a politician, because that's what you do when you're seeking work to, supply, to provide for your family. He was elected city council, even though his dad 
tried to get him not elected because he was so upset about his marriage to Anna. So in 1511, he became part of the city council in Zurich. And then, because that didn't pay enough, he became an army officer, an ensign, which the best of... So that's a na- today is a naval... It's a naval term, right? Yes. Right. So to me, as I... But, so it was the same in the Swiss Army. Uh, you, it was a, like a lieutenant, a second lieutenant. I think that's what would be the equivalent uh, if you think of today's term. So he became, became an officer in the Swiss Army. I could not establish whether they got Swiss Army knives if they became uh, officers uh, then. Uh, and then immediately was sent to war because uh, Swiss, uh, Zurich... And a lot of the cantons were fighting against France in Italy. So he went to war uh, uh, immediately. And after several campaigns, he returned home in, bro- in broken health and died in 1517. So if you're keeping track, he died six years after marrying uh, Anna there, uh, leaving Anna a widow with three children, a son and two daughters. And one of the daughters died shortly after the dead the father died as well. <clears throat> a common thread among all reformers is family death. As a matter of fact, it's a common thread among, uh, among all the households of the time. Today, death has become very sterile. We don't have a lot of contact uh, with death, but everybody in the 16th century would have had somebody in their family die in their presence. Death was not foreign to them. Death was part of their life. We find that with Calvin. Calvin and Idolette uh, lost every single child they conceived, and then Calvin lost Idolette. We find that with Luther and, and Katie as well, where um, Magdalena, who, who was, um, Luther was Luther, so he said, that was my favorite child to the other children, died also in, um, as a young, a young child, and they had to, to grieve through, through that as well. So that was part of daily life there, and uh, they had to deal with it. So eventually, Anna married Zwingli. This is Zwingli. This is his most famous portrait. Um, um, we hope that the artists were just not very good in portraying, because otherwise people were really ugly at the time. But... This is Wingley, and eventually she married him. It was uh, her son, Gerald, who brought his mother and Zwingli together. Zwingli came into Zurich in 1518, so a year after uh, Anne's first, Anna's first husband died, and he came as a, the parish priest for the Roman Catholic Church in Zurich when uh, Anna was struggling to support and train her family. One thing you're going to find that's... Very important for Anna is the training of her children in religious education, but also in academics in general. And she bent backward to train them. And from the very beginning of Zwingli's preaching ministry, she was one of his most attentive listeners. Zwingli tried for the first time something that hadn't been tried for about a thousand years in the church. You know what that was in his preaching? He actually preached through the Bible. He started in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and started preaching through Matthew. 
And that was like, people had never experienced that. Somebody actually opened the Bible, reading a text, and explaining what the text meant, and then applying the text to the people. So Zwingli is doing something completely new here, and Anna is fascinated by the truths of the Word of God. So she was in her, her home was in his parish. Does anybody know what parish means? I know something. So the, in the Roman Catholic Church, each town was divided by in, in segments, neighborhoods, and each neighborhood, you had the priest over that, and then you have a bishop over the, of the several parishes and so on. So everybody in that parish went to a particular church in that parish. You can't just, oh, I'm mad at that priest, I'm going go to go to another church. That didn't happen. Everybody went to the church in their parish. So Zwingli was her parish priest. And that's how he came in contact with her and her children. Uh, her, her son, Gerald, as I said, in, was in particular um, familiar with Zwingli. He came to Zwingli's attention on account of the boy's intelligence. Uh, he tutored, Zwingli tutored Gerald. And when Gerald needed higher education, you know, he needed to go to college at age 11, uh, which is even to that time young, because this was such a bright kid. Zwingli, out of his own money, paid for his college education in Basel, which is another canton, canton in uh, Switzerland. And the boy was so bright that the teacher right back to Zwingli said, hey, send me as many boys as, as that one, because that kid is really good. If you have others like him, send them to me. And Zwingli's fatherly care for the son created a relationship with the mother, and he soon fell in love with Anna. Now, there's a problem with that. And why, what is the problem at the time? Priests are not allowed to marry, even to this day. Roman Catholic priests are not allowed to marry. But there is a, it's interesting that uh, there is a movement in the College of Cardinals in Rome in which they're attempting to say, because they're having a hard time recruiting priests. I wonder why. But they have a hard time recruiting <laughs> priests, and they, need, they want new, new blood, especially in South America. So they're, they're trying to institute the thing that one, if you join the Roman Catholic Church as a priest from this date, then you're allowed to marry. And if you join before that, you're not. So um, they might not want to publicize that date because they might not have any recruits before then. But that's what they're thinking about doing. So that was a difficulty that stood in their relationship since uh, the priests could not marry. So Zwingli, in uh, 1522, wrote to the bishop asking him to permit him to marry. The bishop said no. They got married anyway uh, in 1522. But they did in secret. Zwingli was afraid of what could happen to him. He was trying to protect his ministry. Later on, it became obvious that was the wrong move, that actually he would have been better for his minister to be open instead of secretive about that. But what happens to secrets? Everybody finds them out. So uh, <clears throat> after two years of being married, everybody knew about it, and there was great opposition to them. Now here we have Anna for the second time have to marry in secret, not be able to tell anybody. Remember when she married John, that was in secret as well. Now if she marries again, it's in secret as well. But news of the marriage caused an international sensation since Zwingli was the first reformer to get married. He got married a year before Martin and Katie got married. The Luthers got married. Uh, 
And, and by the time Luther had gotten married, he had already renounced the jurisdiction of the Roman Catholic Church, and Zwingli still saw himself as a Roman Catholic priest there. So the Roman Catholics charge him with breaking his vow and marry Anna for her beauty and for her money. That's what... Uh, and he vehemently denied that he married her for her money. But there's no... He never says anything about the beauty charge, and, which is okay, right? There's nothing wrong with being physically attracted to uh, somebody in the opposite sex. They end up having four children... Two daughters, Regula and Anna, those are their names, and then two sons, uh, Wilhelm and Eurek. And a peculiar comment I found in all the biographical articles I read about her that has no explanation is that once she got married, she stopped wearing jewelry. She used to wear jewelry before she got married. She wore jewelry while married to John, but when she got married to Zwingli, a lot of historians make this comment, but they never no explanation really that was the case. Perhaps she saw it as an idol of her heart, so she stopped um, wearing them. Perhaps she sold them all to help the family because Wingley was dirt poor, and they didn't really have money, so maybe they did that. Perhaps one, one scholar suggested, but that these are just conjectures, they're just suggestions, that her life was so busy... Being, being a wife and a Protestant reformer, that there's just not enough time to put jury uh, on. That was a man that suggested that. I don't know if that uh, <laughs> makes any sense. <clears throat> Anna took a great care, took great care of her husband. Uh, Zwingli called her his dearest housewife, a useful helpmeet to him. And it might come across as demeaning to us, and, but because we have lost a sense of the scriptural callings uh, of, of a wife, of a, being a helpmeet, and that there's no greater um, praise to a wife that she is a godly helpmeet to her husband. Now, they spent happy evenings together as a family, but uh, Zwingli had little time to spare, and he would become very absorbed in his work, waking up before... Uh, Dawn and, and staying up till late. You know, some of uh, it, um, you've heard the expression burning the candle from both ends. That's the idea of having to start your work burning a candle and end your work burning a candle. So you're burning the candle on both ends of the day. That, that was Wingley and, and uh, Anna often would tug on his sleeve and whisper in his ears, uh, take a little more rest, my dear. And he, um, that would help him be a little more sensitive to the amount of time he was spending. When uh, Zwingli started translating the Bible into Swiss German in 1525, he read her the proof sheets, the proof sheets in the evenings before bed, every night. They would read a page that he had translated that day, and, they, and she rejoiced greatly. She loved hearing the gospel stories in her own Swiss German language. It seems like such a little thing for us today, but that wasn't heard of before this time. There's no such translation. And here they are rejoicing that. And when he completed the Bible, and it, and it was published in 1529, he gave her a copy, and it became her favorite book. She rejoiced in that. Now, so 1529, and those were in lots of dates, the German Luther's translation was published in 1534. So you see here's Wingley doing things way ahead of Luther, but uh, he was less... 
boisterous perhaps. He irritated less people than Luther. So his work kind of uh, uh, is not as well known. And she made her goal to introduce that Bible to every family so that every family in the parish would have a copy of the Bible at home so they could read together. There's only one letter surviving from Zwingli to Anna. It was written on the occasion of, um, of her giving birth in his absence. And in it, he thanks the Lord for the arrival of a son, prays that both parents might be able to educate him well. See, again, that, that, that desire to educate them in the things of the, the Lord and in the creation of the Lord. And he urges Anna not to worry about his own safety. And then um, he sends greetings to the friends. Anna w- welcomed large numbers of her husband's friends and entertained, entertained his guests uh, frequently without a lot of money. Uh, just, she was able to do that with, with very meager income. The uh, Swiss civil leaders, so the, we, we, that's another thing that's foreign to us. In the Reformation, in, in even following the Reformation, the churches were controlled by the civil government. The civil government who set up pastor's salary, who decided matters of discipline and doctrine, and the Swiss cantons, the, the, those little cities that we saw, the civil government had something in common. They really believed in that prayer that uh, they would pray, Lord, um, how's it go? I forgot now. Keep, keep a pastor faithful and we'll keep them humble by not paying them enough. So they, the civil government really believed that the pastor should not make a lot of money, so the Zwinglis didn't have a lot of money. They got paid by the city. And yet, Anna was able to make that go a long way in entertaining uh, the people in, that would come to their house. Protestant refugees are starting to, f- to flood into Switzerland in general, and Zurich as well. And her home was always open to them. Even when Zwingli was away, Anna would be the center of the circle. Of leading citizens and ministers gave her great credit and praise. In 1526, some dignitaries visiting the home, and he's so impressed by how the home was run that he declared that he would never forget it, and he called Anna an angel wife, uh, a model wife uh, for others to see as well. But their life wasn't all, all you know, cotton candy and unicorns. There were sorrows as well. Um, there was hard work. There was serious danger going on as well. Uh, Zwingli li- lived in continual threat of assassination or kidnapping by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, he could not go out alone after dark. So Anna went out and put together a protective escort for him. He's the one that, she's the one that went out and found bodyguards for her husband. She figured out a way to find some money in the home budget to hire bodyguards for her husband, and she ran the, ran the schedule and made sure that her husband was always protected when he went out. Uh, things were so dire for Zwingli that he could even eat outside of the home because he was scared of being poisoned uh, or, um, yeah, poisoned outside of the home. And there's accounts of her frustrating several attacks on his life. She kept an intelligence service uh, in town, and she knew everything was going on, and several times she was able to uh, call on her husband, don't go there because they're going to try to kill you there, and frustrated uh, an attack on her husband there. But she also 
found protection. Uh, she looked to him for protection. There's a particular event in 1528, August 28th to be precise, where their house was stoned at night. So they have wooden structures and a, a crowd came and started throwing large rocks and the walls starting to cave in. And the, the, Anna and the children were um, panicking and afraid. Uh, Zwingli pulled his sword out, goes out, beats three of the guys. Uh, it doesn't kill them, but really beats them good. They all run away, and, and as they run away, say, hey, if you guys didn't have anything to discuss, come back tomorrow morning. That's how the, the ends of the discussion uh, there. You know, maybe they had some theological thing that they wanted to discuss uh, with him. And, and these are just the troubles that are foreshadowing what's coming, the coming sorrow. Anna and her husband saw the storm gathering, and it burst on the scene on October 9th, uh, fifteen. 31. Everybody knows what happens then, right? No, I didn't either. Uh, <laughs> on the ninth, news comes that the, the Roman Catholic army led by Charles V. Now, who is Charles V at the time? That should be a well-known figure if you study history. He's the Holy Roman Emperor. In essence, the German king. And, and with some Spanish connection as well. So he He's marching on to Switzerland. And the Swiss army has to deploy, and Zurich has to send men to join that army. Zwingli joined the army as a chaplain, and he went with them. Gerald, the, her oldest son, also went. And as they're about to, to leave, Anna comes out of the par- parsonage where they lived and to say goodbye to her husband, and, and she bursts into tears. And he, he said to her, the hour is come that separates us, let it be so, the Lord wills. He hugged her and she answered, we shall see each other again if the Lord wills. His will will be done, and what will you bring back when you come? And she's not asking for a present, right? She's, she's just making sure that is the idea of come safe, bring yourself back to me, to that Zwingli replies, what are you going to be back when you, when you come? Blessings after a dark night. And that was the last word he's ever said to her. With her children, Anna hurried into the house, kneeled and prayed what our Lord Jesus had prayed. Father, not my will, but thine be done. When the first news of defeat, the, the, the Swiss army was handily defeated by the uh, uh, Roman Catholic army, Army, and when the first news of defeat came into town, they tried to keep it from her. But so many people from Zurich died that the crying in town was so loud that she knew that something had happened because every single household had lost somebody in the battle. And she knew exactly what had happened when she heard the outcries in the city. Uh, he, uh, Heinrich Bullinger, who was a younger pastor in town, says that when the news couldn't be kept from her, he went and told her what had happened. Many had lost loved ones, but Anna's grief was a little different. Of all the households in town, she lost the most men. Her son, her husband, her brother, her son-in-law, and her cousin all died 
in that, in that battle. So death, the sadness of death circled her. And because of her grief, Anna is often referred to in, in writings of her time as Reformation's weeping mother because of these sorrows that came into her life. Prominent citizens and ministers visited to, uh, or wrote letters to, 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 to offer her consolation and comfort. Martin Bucer, uh, he's a reformer from Strasbourg, offered to help her and her children. But the greatest earthly comforter of all was her, uh, to her was young Heinrich Bullinger, her husband's successor. And just like the Apostle John, remember how Jesus asked John to take care of his mother, Mary? Just like the Apostle John took care of Mary, Bollinger took care of, uh, of uh, Anna and her children for the rest of her life as a loving son. And he, out of his eager, remember, he's a pastor too, he's been paid by the city, out of his meager income, paid not only for his own children's education, but for her children's education as well. After Zwingli died, we don't know much about her life. Apparently, she rarely left the house except to go to church. In her later life, she was very sick for years, but she bore her sufferings patiently. Bollinger Bollinger said of her death on December 6, uh, 1538, so that would make her 54 years old when she died. Bollinger said, I desire no more happy end of life. She passed away softly like a mild light and went home to her Lord, worshiping and commending us all to God. So she lived, she died as she had lived. So what are some lessons from from Anna's life? Well, Anna's life was driven by the principles she read in her Swiss Bible. What she read in the Bible, she attempted to live out. What she read in the Bible, she believed. That's a lesson for us here today. She was not afraid of marrying, despite massive opposition, because she knew that marriage was right and instituted by the Lord himself. She faithfully and carefully taught her children following the precepts of Deuteronomy 6. Her children's education was very important to her, to the point where she would prefer going hungry than to have uneducated children. Her support of Zwingli as a wife freed him to work faithfully, and he praised her, praised her in the gates. Uh, many have said that she was a model, the model minister's wife. The fo- another title they've given to her is the foster mother of the poor and the visitor of the sick. She was called uh, the Reformation Dorcas. Now, this, uh, I don't know if you remember the reference there to Acts chapter 9, where this, this woman, Dorcas, lived for good works and charitable deeds there. In her relationship and conversation with others, she revealed the Christian spirit. The more religious the conversation, the more she took part in it. No greater joy could have come to her than to receive some new light on some holy truth. She loved to hear Zwingli in his homiletical works, that is, his preaching, um, sometimes throwing new light on the character of Christ. She rejoiced in learning more about Christ. 
Her care for the poor and the sick of the parish earned the trust of the people who could see Christian likeness lived out in Anna's example. So she loved people. She loved people because Christ loved people. Anna also left a living legacy in her children who continued her part, pattern of building up the church through kindness to the saints. Uh, the oldest daughter of Zwingli, uh, her name was Regula, they say inherited the beauty of her mother and possessed also the piety of both her parents. She grew up in the family of Bollinger with another foster child who eventually became her husband. And during the Marian, Marian persecution, remember Mary, that became known as Bloody Mary, uh, out of the Tudor lineage. During her persecution, many fled England and ended up in Zurich. And Regula and her husband became regular supporters of those. As a matter of fact, Grin, Grinwald, which is not a Harry Potter character, it was a, uh, a man that came to live with them who eventually became, through their influence, a Bible-believing Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, why is the Archbishop of Canterbury an important position? Because that's the religious head of the Church of England. And he is the one that implemented a lot of reforms later on under Elizabeth, who followed Mary. Uh, well, after Mary came, Edward, I can't remember who has the tutor, but she implemented a lot of, uh, uh, it was Elizabeth, Mary, Edward, right? Mary Elizabeth. Yeah, two days doesn't count. So, <laughs> yeah. So you can see that just by her ministering to this man at her house, she had great, great um, influence. After Regula died, her husband wrote what the pious Abraham lost in his beloved Sarah and Jacob in his lovely Rachel, that I have also now to mourn. An example of purest love, of the most inviolable conjugal fidelity and domestic virtue, she knew how to drive away sadness and every tormenting care from my soul. Anna outlived, so this is what, what Regulus' husband said, so just showing how she, Anna outlived her life through even her kids, but she also, her work, her faithful work outlived her body. Anna set the pattern for Protestant women, especially pastors' wives, she had run well, and others were waiting to follow. And the Reformation in Switzerland as a whole owes a lot to Anna's faithful witness as a woman, as a wife, and as a mother. Any questions? Linda. When was I'm sure he was. I don't have that, that date. Um, pretty much all reformers that were... Uh, though, interestingly, there's no record of John Calvin ever being excommunicated. Um, but they all parted with the church. It was never their intent to part. The, the idea was to... Well, I mean, if we preach the truth, the Pope is going to hear it, right? Because it's supposed to be a servant of Christ. That was their first instinct. Any other questions. So our goal is to expose you to 
people who are being used by the Lord, people just like us, men and women, to see that these are not super saints, these are saints just like us, and that through us, men and women, the Lord can bring further revival to his church. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your providence. Thank you for those that have gone before us. We pray that as we consider their lives, that you help us to, uh, to be encouraged by it, to be convicted by, by it. Help us to be motivated to also follow you faithfully. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.